everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. It is Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. I am exceptionally glad that you are here today, and I'll tell you why. Um, it is Christmas, I don't know if you noticed. And there is, on one hand, like amazing things everywhere and delight and wonder and joy. Um, and very much, on the other hand, for so many people, there is pain or loss or hard memories or relationships that um, failed us in some way or are failing now. And so the result is that this time of year can be really complicated. And um, it, it has this very strange dichotomy uh, of what we kind of see on the surface and then what actually is. It just brings up all kinds of stuff. You know, normally here on the show, we do a series. But in this case, um, I wanted to do one Christmas episode, just one. This is a one-off. And I wanted, well, I don't know how else to say this, but I wanted just to pastor you in some way. And I wanted to shepherd my listeners and to speak life and truth into your experience right now and into your heart and mind and soul and just create space, really, maybe just one hour worth of space to be nourished um, and nurtured and heard and understood. I asked my friend, Pastor and author Nadia Bowles Weber um, to lead us today, to come on the show and to shepherd us. Um, now, a lot of you, of course, know Nadia. She is the founder and then former pastor. About a, a year and a half ago, she stepped away um, to do her ministry kind of in a different way. Uh, but she was the pastor at House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Um, I've never known anyone like Nadia. No one is exactly like her. She is, um, she's a former stand-up comic, which you'll see, you'll pick up on that real quickly. She's a recovering alcoholic and her online moniker, sarcastic Lutheran <laughs> is like hilariously accurate. She nailed it. Um, she's a really brilliant writer and thinker and believer. And so today she's going to lead us through the Christmas story and the Christmas season in a way that I hope is incredibly meaningful to you. And I want you to know this first before you just click off, like, oh, nope. If you haven't darkened a church doorway in years or ever, um, or even if you've already heard the Christmas story a zillion times in the last six weeks, um, or you just think that this might not be for you, that you don't know what you believe, or if you believe um, that the version of Christianity you see right now cannot possibly hold any meaning for you in real life, um, I actually want you to stay. And I think that you are going to find some real beauty in today's episode. Um, 
especially in the way Nadia talks about Jesus and scripture and the Christmas story. And I hope that this will be a profound experience for you. It definitely was for me. Uh, You will see that as we signed off at the end, uh, it was me bawling and blowing my nose right into the microphone. And I'm really sorry about that. But Nadia's benediction and her words were so beautiful and so lovely and meaningful and true and good. And so no matter how you come to this table, um, I hope you'll stay. And I hope this episode serves you well. And I am, I'm incredibly grateful to my friend, the wonderful Nadia Bowles Weber, um, for being our pastor today. I am the lucky girl today to welcome my friend to the For the Love podcast, Nadia. Hi. Hey, Jen. I told you this before we started recording, but um, my podcast team and I were steering the ship into December waters, and I wanted to just, this is a one-off podcast. You know, we normally do, um, we uh, the normal way we do the podcast is in series, and we'll have like five or six in a row um, on the same theme, but this is just all by itself. This is a standalone because... I wanted to offer my listeners, well, like I told you, some pastoring. Mm -hmm. And I told my team that I wanted you to be the pastor. Mm -hmm. And I find you very special in this space and incredibly gifted, um, more so than probably anyone I've ever seen. I'm, I kind of, I'm a little, I do a little jaw drop at the way that you, um, are gifted for this work and the depths of your like mind and your heart and even your creativity and the way that you talk about God and faith and life. And so, um, so I appreciate you coming in here to do some pastoring as you just have described that you are finding interesting ways to pastor in this world and to this world right now. All right. So one question that gets bandied about right now about this time is, you know, people are always asking, are you ready for Christmas? Uh, you wrote like a really cool piece about that one time. Are you ready for Christmas? Um, I, I wonder, um, about that question and what it really means, what people are really asking. Um, are they, do they want our real answers? Uh, or is that kind of like a surfacey question? Like, do you have your tree up or is that more like, is this a hard month? Um, and so I want to ask you first, and then we're going to sort of steer the conversation, um, a little bit toward everybody else listening, but like, what, what do you specifically, um, love or appreciate or look forward to kind of in this part of the year? Well, as we record this, Advent starts this coming Sunday, and I I love that there is a whole season of the year that's about, in some ways, it's kind of about not doing anything. Right. Great like, point. It's about like waiting and anticipating, and sort. I mean, there is that that term prepare. But not prepare in the sense of duty, you know, what's your duty to fulfill at this point, Mm. but to prepare and in terms of like being aware of like, we never know what's going to happen in our lives. So what, what's the stuff that's kind of foundational in our lives that, that we can grip onto 
um, at, because nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, all the a lot of the texts during Advent are about nobody knows the hour, nobody knows when this is going to happen. It, but then it's like, be ready. I'm like, be ready for what you don't know. But I, you know, of course, when people say, "Are you ready for Christmas?" they're like. They mean, like, have you done all the shopping? Are the gifts wrapped? Have you, you know, have you maxed out your credit card and and bought, like, um, pants that have elastic waistbands for the season? You know, I mean, it's like, that's what they mean. But, like, in a way, you think about this time of year and how loaded it is. It's the holidays, like capital T, capital H. And, and I say in this letter, like, maybe you still feel obliged to spend holidays with your family because you're supposed to belong with them, but mm. belonging is never what you feel because right. your family can't love you well the way your friends can, and it's painful to realize that every year. Or maybe you lost your parents too soon and you quietly fume this time of year when your friends complain about like not belonging with their family mm. because their mom right. is a chain-smoking neat freak and their dad watches too much football mm. because, well, you do anything to have one one more Thanksgiving with your parents despite their shortcomings. Or maybe you're the parent of a young adult who's decided they don't belong to you and with you in the way you wish they still did. I mean, it's just, there. it's so loaded around issues of identity and belonging for people. And when the whole culture around us is sort of glibly singing, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it can be rough. Absolutely. Um, And that's kind of why I wanted to lean a little bit into this story, just that old story that we keep coming back to and that um, has the at least the potential to center us in a different way to to move the conversation away from what we've created it to be in our time and era and what it started as. And so I wonder, and I'm, I will just, I'll just put this to you and let you do it however you want. But I wonder if you would take us back, um, to Bethlehem and talk through really any part of it, any piece of it that means something special to you, maybe always, maybe just this year, maybe something that you've noticed or that you think is worth hearing. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. Um, I'm going to just read part of it from okay. Luke. Just because sometimes the familiarity we have with stories gets in the way of us really hearing them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in Luke it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy." And he will be called Son of God. 
And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. I have this memory uh, from when I was 12 years old of going to a friend's house for a sleepover and like feeling quietly scandalized by something I discovered about her and her family when I was there. Um, they weren't they weren't heroin addicts or like part part of an armed militia. <clears throat> um, they were Catholic. Oh dear! Yeah, oh, and they weren't no. even trying to hide it. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> see, so like seeing images of Mary all over their house. Um, oh, yeah. I wouldn't have been more scandalized if those pictures in their living room were of Playboy pinups. <laughs> honestly, like I knew Catholics existed with their saints and their candles and their sure. rosaries and like all their other exotic ways of being wrong. Very. Uh, <laughs> but but now I'd met some and yeah. the truth is I I couldn't stop staring at uh Mary. Hmm. Like she was I was absolutely captivated. Like she was so luminescent and good and trustworthy. Hmm. And her beauty was so strong. And I was secretly just jealous as all get out. Huh. Wow. I just have always, ever since that sleepover, just been so drawn to Mary. And I like to say, like, Protestants don't really know what to do with Mary. It's like right. Roman Catholics already have dibs on her. Right. <laughs> so we just... We've lost we our just, grip on her. Yeah. Yes. So we just, we just like, stand by. We just, like, <laughs> dust her off once a year to be the pretty young yep. girl in the nativity set. And then That's right. we put her quickly away before she embarrasses anyone. That's right. <laughs> so um, I didn't, like pick up my love of her again until my 20s. Um, but I was going to read something that I wrote about okay. about her. There's so many reasons to love Mary. She's been loved uh, for centuries for being the docile picture of purity and virginity. As a matter of fact, church doctrines have been written to say that Mary was perpetually a virgin and born without sin. Mm. But that always sounds to me like a way of saying that God could never choose to make God's home in the womb of an actual woman, mm. since we know that actual women are sinful, fleshy, temptus, temp temptresses. Yeah. So Mary had to... Uh, had to have been a special, like, one-off kind of woman that was really, really different. And it was actually her really, really differentness from actual women mm. that, A, earned her God's favor, and B, should be emulated by actual women, even though we can never hope to attain it. Because, as stated previously, Mary was totally different than any other woman before or since. But, like, mm. knock yourselves out, girls. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's like yeah. the message was. But then also Mary's been loved by leftists as a sort of first century teenage female Che Guevara singing the Magnificat about the overthrow of the social order where the hungry are fed and the rich are sent away empty handed. And I love that image, even while I think it might be slightly misguided. But then other people disturbed by the a rationality of the whole thing see mary and especially the virgin birth as like a fairy tale for the gullible something 
ignorant people believe in because they haven't learned to use human reason or listen to NPR enough. (laughs) 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 And I just don't don't feel satisfied with any of those ways of seeing Mary because I want – I want to view Mary and even the Christmas story itself without sentimentality or cynicism, Mm. which are the two things I think we default to. That's good. Actually, getting through Christmas without sentimentality or cynicism is perhaps my goal. Mm. (laughs) So, okay. So, here's my thing. Okay. Here we have a girl, likely between 13 and 15 years of age. She's a peasant, and she's engaged to a pretty religious guy. And an angelic figure visits her saying that she's found favor with God and is going to conceive a son by the Holy Spirit. And I know people get hung up on believing the virgin birth thing, but for me, the harder thing to believe was that she said yes. Hmm. That's good. I mean, like if, and this is a big if, mind you, but if I ever would have said yes to something so bizarre, I would only have done so if I knew what was in it for me. That's good. Like, namely, how am I? I going to be blessed by this God who wants to use me. But Mary, based on like very little solid evidence or information, said, I am God's and let it be with me according to God's word. She said yes. And I've always wondered like if there were a like VH1 behind the music special about Mary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we'd finally like learn the whole story, like how many girls said no that night before the April <laughs> <laughs> right. found one that would say yes, you know, that backstory. Um, and like if there were a string of girls saying no that night, you you really can't blame them because sure. A few verses later, Elizabeth calls Mary blessed, Mm -hmm. and Mary sings that for generations, uh, generations to come, people will call her blessed. But Mm -hmm. think about how the story played played out for her. Like, is that what being blessed looks like? We usually use that word differently. Like, you're you're so blessed to have that new boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How? But I wonder, like, how how does how does Mary use that word? Did she feel blessed as her unwed belly grew under the gaze of disapproving others? Did she feel blessed when laboring amongst sheep and straw? Did she feel blessed when her heart dropped, realizing she left her 12-year-old in Jerusalem? Yes. At his arrest, did she feel blessed mm-hmm. seeing rope dig into the wrists of her son? Did she feel blessed when they lifted him up? Blessed are you among women. I mean, if that's what blessing is, I feel like I might have to pass. Like, it was hard enough sending my oldest kid to middle school. Golgotha is a whole other matter. But I think the prophet Mary of Nazareth had a particular wisdom to her. I'm not, I'm not convinced she was perpetually full of nothing but virtue, virginity, and pure receptivity. But I'm sure she wasn't just another Joe Schmo who doesn't deserve any more honor than another character in the Bible, because that that yes she gave was fierce. I think Mary deserves our devotion because in her we see what casting our lot with and being blessed by the God of Israel really looks like. Namely, being blessed means seeing God in the world and trusting that God is at work, even in things we can't see, understand, or imagine. Mary saying, God, I'm yours, let's do this, subverts both sentimentality and cynicism. She didn't trust that God was going to shower her with cash and prizes. She got something that I really struggle to understand, that 
Getting a blessing is not the same as getting a present. She said yes, not based on the expectation of things being awesome for her, but based on the expectation that God can create something out of nothing. And we never know, simply based on how our life feels, if it's filled with God's blessing or not. So I like to say that being a people marked by the faith of Mary is to be a people who say, okay, I don't understand what's going on. And I know that my life isn't going to end up looking like one I would choose out of a catalog, but I trust God is at work in all of it. Blessed, blessedness is being used for God's purpose more than it's getting what I want or things being easy. But Christmas isn't about getting what you want or making sure you're giving others what they want. To experience Christmas is to trust that God can do this thing again, that God can again in the most outrageous, unlikely way, be born in me and in you and in this broken mess of a gorgeous world. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for writing that um, and sharing it here. a question that's hard to answer honestly sometimes it's that question like how are you how many times have you thought you don't want the raw answer to that i promise you been there absolutely had moments where i needed someone to listen to my real and true and raw answers so good counseling can do that i'm such a believer and one of my favorite partners in counseling is a fabulous service called better help better help can connect you to a licensed therapist or counselor online so you can get help whenever and wherever you need it. You can talk to your counselor on your computer or phone anywhere in the world about once a week. It is a wonderful, pressure-free, convenient way to get some outside perspective and see your life through a different lens. Better help is a truly affordable way to find the help that you need today. I believe in them so much. And so they are giving my listeners 10% off their first month with the code for the love. So here's what you do. Go to betterhelp.com slash for the love, and then use the code for the love and get started today. Okay. Back to our show. I'm, I'm interested in something else that you wrote one time, um, because I think it's important mm-hmm. that we don't forget what Christmas is. Um, because like you once said, it's actually a story of alienation and political tyranny, homelessness, working class people, pagans and angels. Um, <laughs> this is p- pulling it cleanly out of the sentimentality space. Yeah. Um, this is, this is grittier than we tend to assign the season. Um, definitely prefer the shinier version of the story. And so I find that weirdly hopeful right now because sometimes we forget that Jesus was born under rule of a, an empire under a King who wanted him murdered, uh, took a hit out on him when he was two. Um, it was a world filled with oppression and corruption and greed, just literally like the world we are living in this very minute. Um, and so I, I find the Christmas story a balm when I can consider it truthfully, 
when I can um, mm. look at the story as it really was, um, how it was really framed, which is similar to what you just said, the difference between mm. a blessing and a present. I, I, I like the present version of Christmas, but the blessing version <laughs> has something to teach us right now. And so I wonder if you could talk about how the truthfulness, the the grit of the real story um, mm. actually offers us more than the Hallmark version of the story. Yeah, I wrote about this in um, Accidental Saints. Joy, Joy Wallace wrote a piece ages ago called Keeping Herod and Christmas. <laughs> which mm. I, which That's was a great genius. title. Yes, yeah. totally. I like to tell the story that, um, like, we get confused about which characters were in the Christmas story, weren't in the Christmas story, at what point were they in it. And I like to tell the story about... Uh, in my ex-husband's first parish, they did a living nativity every year where people could drive by a little scene that was set up that had farm animals and somebody would be, you know, holding sure. a baby, playing Mary, all of that. Of course. And uh, I was inside helping people get dressed for the different shifts because it was very cold out. So uh -huh. people could only last about 15 minutes before having to switch out and get some hot chocolate. So this kid came in from his shift and I said... Hey, Peter, how did you, like, little boy, I go, how did you like being a shepherd mm -hmm. in the nativity? And he looked at me, he goes, oh, that's pretty good. But um, next year, I think I want to be a pirate. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the pirate at the sure. birth of our Lord. Sure, but, like, it's a lesser known character, but yeah. <laughs> but like, is that is that any weirder than presuming there was a drummer boy? It's like, no weirder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, look, I've given birth to two children and in a much more comfortable setting sure. than, a, than a barn. Yeah. And I can say with certainty, the last thing I wanted in my labor and delivery room was a boy playing a drum. Like, <laughs> literally, even if he was playing his best for me, I <laughs> get <laughs> you know? Totally. And then also, yes. my favorite are the little, when there's a little manger scene with Santa kneeling. Oh, <laughs> kneeling. yeah. Yeah, that's always a real, real weird little bit of heresy there. <laughs> <laughs> a little tasty morsel of heresy. Sure. Yep. <laughs> so, but um, it's like we think there's like Santa, pirates, drummer yeah. boys, mm -hmm. but we, what we forget to put in the little manger scene was Herod. That's right. And the time that really came up to for me was I think it was 2012, wasn't it, when Sandy Hook happened? Oh, right. Yeah. And it was like 12 days before Christmas. That's Do you remember right. that? It was sure like 12. Was. It was during Advent. It just was, a, a, it just feel, felt like such an unfair bit of added brutality. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, how am I, we, I can't celebrate Christmas after yeah. something like that happens. I'm like, well, maybe if we understood the Christmas story better, you know, the fact that, yeah, that um, that kind of like, infanticide and violence and corruption and insecure troglodytes have always existed. That's right. You know, that um, this, uh, to me, Christmas is that, is this idea that God chose to enter a world as violent and faithless as our own. Like God didn't wait around until we had some idealized version of ourselves available, some snow covered silent night affected version of the world. And then God chose to be born as Jesus. Or even like a majority culture. 
We were yes. in charge of the world at the time. Exactly mm-hmm. right. It's a good point. That's mm-hmm. right. So I, to me, like there's so much. This is why I think biblical Ill- illiteracy is actually very dangerous. Absolutely. Because, you know, there's so many things that, like you said, dominant cultures, dominant mm-hmm. groups have always been the ones to tell us what the yes. Bible says and what it means. And um, and it's really powerful when some when a message is given to us, you know, in God's name. Yes. But but people have 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 sort of done evil things under the cover of this is this isn't us, it's God's will right. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so the more we know about the text itself, the more equipped we are to sort of reclaim it for the liberation for which it was intended, mm-hmm. instead of using it as camouflage for our own biases mm-hmm. and 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 hunger for power. I mean, that's why, that's why I still have skin in the game. I went to church voluntarily last night, you know, at the <laughs> cathedral here. Like I won't step away be- yeah. I, because um, I just think scripture and liturgy and theology is just way too potent to be left in the hands of people who only use it to justify their dominance over another group of people. Wow. Um, I couldn't agree more. It took me a long time to understand that, actually. I I received every bit of gospel um, and scripture through the dominant lens my whole life, which is how I came to understand it, which is how I sort of assimilated it into my worldview, um, into my understanding of God, and then wondered when I hit adulthood, why so much of it rang empty and caused so much harm and damage. And so undoing that work is, it is not for the faint of heart. Um, And it is, it is a labor. And I just kind of want to acknowledge really quickly, whoever is listening, who's kind of in the middle of that labor of understanding that indeed, privilege is a very reliable enemy of discernment. And once you know that, you can't unknow it. And then you begin to see everything you ever understood through the lens of privilege. It's lonely. That work is lonely, and it feels disorienting. Um, And as they say, slippery. Um, And so, but it's good work. And I think that's what you're, I think that's what you're saying. It's why you still have skin in the game. And me too. Otherwise, we would have walked away a long time ago. Totally. A long yeah. time ago. Because the that version of it is so empty and so abusive. Um, and so I think it's worth a call out to say, there's a different way to think about this story right now. There's a different way to think about Jesus um, and about God and about how he came and why. There's some amazing guides out there. I yes, mean, there there's, you know, womanist biblical scholars and mm. theologians. There's feminist theology you can look at. There's liberation. Th- I mean, there are all these incredible guides out there who who see the liberation of the text that yes. um, see it in a completely different way. I read a book this year that was from um, a Choctaw uh, mm. Episcopal priest, and wow. it was just—I think it's called the Four Vision Quests of Jesus—and mm-hmm. it just. At the end, I was like, oh, "Am I like I? I mm. all of it was so beautiful that I was like, oh, am I a native Christian?' And I didn't know. <laughs> and I'm like, now I'm still a white girl.' So, <laughs> right. um, but it, but it, mm. it overturned everything, and it was so. Wow. 
And it was so faithful to the text. And yes. so I just, there's so, there's so many good guides out there. That's um, a great point. And we will for sure link to that book. And that's good counsel. Just yeah. when we look to the narrative from someone who has not centered themselves in mm-hmm. it um, as from a place of power mm-hmm. uh, and a place of privilege, I mean, it, it's almost like a d- completely different story. Um, it, the, the amount of freedom that is then understood to, to come through it, that, that's kind of changed my adult life. Um, but also, like, at the, I collect pe- people when I'm traveling constantly tell me their religious backgrounds. I mean, mm. every time I meet people, they'll say, I was raised Catholic. I was sure. like, they just, they lead with it mm. with me. And so I hear a lot about why people leave the church. Like, yeah. uh, my dad was horribly, like, physically abused my mom. Yes. And when she finally you know, had the sort of courage to leave him. The church said she couldn't take communion anymore. Mm. Or I had to choose between my sexuality and my religious belief, and I chose me. Or whatever, you know, you hear all these narratives, and and I get it. Like, but never once, not one time, have I heard someone go, well, I was raised Christian, but I left because I just— I just felt like that Jesus guy didn't have much to offer. Hmm. Great point. I mean, I— People are not leaving the church because they don't believe in the gospel. People are leaving the church because they believe in the gospel so much they can't stomach being part of an institution that says it's about it and clearly is not. Hmm. I've never heard that one time either. In <laughs> fact, I've only I've only heard the opposite um, yeah. from people that I've met who've walked away um, and just said, you know, I, I can't ever go back. I'll never darken the doors again. I everything got rattled down to the core for me. And then there's always like a pause and sometimes like their eyes will start swimming a little bit and they'll just say but man gosh I um I really miss Jesus yeah totally it's the opposite um he remains he remains like when everything else falls away as the chaff that it is um he remains and that that's what holds me fast oh my gosh Um, literally that's I think that's almost it (laughs) well this is why like quote, liberal Christianity can be a bit disappointing to me because Mm. so often the more social justice-oriented churches um, don't engage Scripture that much. They don't talk about Jesus that much. And I'm like, are you kidding? Scripture and Jesus are literally the only two things we have going for us. Why would you just allow, you know, more conservative forms of Christianity to have mm. ownership over it. Mm. These are the only two things we have. That's right. And there is. That's the good news. Um, uh, there really is. It holds. I, I, I've said this before, but one thing I was delighted to, to discover as a grown-up whose structures fell away and I had to really consider what's left and do I believe it, um, is that... It turns out if you do it with a great deal of humility and integrity and you consider the text um, from the vantage point, the viewpoint of which it was written primarily by oppressed people and for them, um, you can press really, really hard on scripture and it will hold. And what a wonderful thing to discover. Um, You don't want to press just ever so firmly and have the thing disintegrate in your hands. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. doesn't Because it actually is, it is an endless 
reservoir of meaning. That's that good. Every group that has approached it and wrestled with it and demanded from it a blessing has walked away. Maybe there's a limp, you know, when they walk, but they walk away. And that um, it will, ha- if you do the work, it will hand over the goods. That's so good. Yeah. So here is a good question. What are you going to do today to just help you feel on top of your game? Maybe you started the day with yoga. Maybe later you're going to lock the door and hop in the bath and lose yourself in a great book. Every single day, we make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And thankfully, the folks at FabFitFun are here to make self-care super simple. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. It has eight to 10 full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products inside every box. In fact, every single FabFitFun box has a value of at least over $200. And you get it for $49.99. And once a season, you can visit their website to start customizing your own box. In fact, FabFitFun just shared a few things they're working on for the upcoming winter box. So now you get to contemplate fun things like, would I rather have the unhide faux fur blanket or the Rebecca Minkoff beanie set? I have, through my subscription to FabFitFun, discovered some products that are now my very favorite things um, that I have used in regular rotation and that I have also given as gifts. So to grab your own box, go to fabfitfun.com and then use the coupon FTL for $10 off your first box. Not bad. It's fabfitfun.com and then use the code FTL at checkout to get $10 off your very first box. Okay, guys, back to the show. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You kind of just walked through what what cr- the Christmas season feels like to so many people. Just the disappointment of it, the fear and anxiety around it, the um, the lack of belonging when it's supposedly supposed to deliver the belonging, and just all the things that you said. This is hard for many reasons, for a million, many people for a million reasons. And so, um, I would love to hear anything you could offer us as we think about some of the hardest moments in this season, supposedly of joy and how do we hang on and how do we move forward and how do we keep our, keep our faith and our hope intact? I think just sort of being honest about how things feel. I think being open to what things will be rather than predetermining what they have to look like in order Mm. for them to be good. Instead of predetermining, hey, I have all these resentments towards my family. And then all you do is look for supporting information for why that's still true. Mm. You know, I mean, there's a million ways that we... Uh, there, I mean, sometimes we think we're victims when really we're volunteers. Ah, and so gosh. I think, yeah, that's gross. Mm. So, um, so I think that there is a, there, there can be a power and sort of realizing how much our 
thoughts about things are what are making us suffer more than mm. the events themselves. And to go, oh, That's wow, then, then I actually have some choices in this. Mm. That can be hard because it can, you know, we can get really attached to certain narratives about yes. ourselves and certain narratives about our families. But like, I feel like I've had a healing in just like my relationship with my mom this year. And really? Yeah, and I, I we've had a hard relationship and uh in throughout my life and I think there was just something about um sort of choosing to see her not through the eyes of my my wounds my girl wounds yes. you know what I mean yep, or the I things do. I felt like I didn't get that I thought I wanted or needed from her or whatever like that's a lens that can be useful to see, to name, to understand, but but is also optional. So I I kind of went, I I don't think that seeing her through that lens is serving me at all. It's not serving me. It's not serving her. And and there are other ways to view people other than the one that we are just so stuck in. You know, we get these deeply worn neural grooves in our minds, in our brains that, but that I think that sometimes there are ways to kind of go to name it and go, oh, that's maybe optional instead of, you know, compulsory. Yes, absolutely. Um, while challenging, that is a that's a discipline, honestly, to engage that work and um, to figure out what you what you hang on to and what you set down. Uh, but it's monumental. I love hearing that you feel like you've had a breakthrough with your mom this year, which is great to hear because a lot of us walk around with pain and suffering and wounds that are like they're forty five years old. You know? <sighs> they're fifty years old. It's never too late. Yeah. Uh, it's not a life sentence. <laughs> Um, right. to be stuck in those places of sorrow um, right. and of regret. And yeah. um, I love hearing that you, I mean, you're a pastor and and you still did this work this very calendar year. And so oh, to me, yeah. that is really yeah. encouraging. I'm just an example of what it looks like to need grace. Like that would be <laughs> mostly I'm that example. Like my parishioners would always say, yeah, we're really glad we have a preacher who's clearly preaching to herself and just letting us <laughs> overhear it. <laughs> like that's... That's mainly what I have to offer. <laughs> I just want to go back yeah. to that thing about like resentments. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I'm so, so grateful to be, have been a member of a 12-step community for 20, almost 28 years. Yeah, wow. Because, um, because like the big book of of AA says, it talks about how how dangerous and how toxic resentments are specifically for alcoholics because it says that um, it calls resentment the dubious luxury of ordinary men. Meaning if you have this particular twist, you know, where you're an alcoholic, that's not a luxury you can afford. And so, so much, I think a lot of people might not even realize this about the 12 steps. So much of it is, is, trying to deal with your resentments and to see how much our resentments have a secret fuel source. And the secret fuel source of our resentments is the little, maybe sometimes the little tiny 5% of the situation that we're responsible for. Well, hmm. it, like it says about resentment in that book, it says, if you look back far enough, 
you know, these people harmed you, what they did was wrong, not dismissing that, not saying it's anything other than harm, not saying it's okay. But if sometimes if you look back far enough, you'll find that at some point in the past, you made a decision based on self that put you in a position to be harmed, you know? So, but, and people, we don't want to look at that because it, it feels perilously close to saying that the harm isn't harmful or saying it's okay that person did that. No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. We're saying if you want freedom, if you really want to be free, it takes looking at that stuff because we can detail till the cows come home how everyone else is wrong. And we could be accurate in all that, but not any of it. If, you know, I always say it feels good for a minute, but only in the way that peeing your pants feels warm for a minute, you know, like <laughs> That's good. it will be cold and smelly after a while. So like all of that, you know, is fine. It feels good to do that. And it might very well be absolutely true, but it is not the path to your freedom. Wow. Gosh, that's hard to hear and hard to face. And I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. Yeah, it's the worst. This is what I believe, like, so much of the gospel is about, is like, you know, that whole love your enemies, that's not about being a doormat. No, it's not. Do you know, that's about freedom, in a sense. And so... Um, that's why I like to say the gospel is like the worst good news I've ever heard in my <laughs> totally, life. Totally, <laughs> absolutely. It's too hard. It's just it calls us too high. Living a healthy life is far more than just losing weight, right? It's about developing habits that help you feel like your strongest, your most confident self. And I found a partner that guides me and cheers me on. And you've heard me talk about it. It's called Noom. Noom is not a diet. It's just this healthy and easy to stick to way of life. Noom is based in psychology. So it teaches you why you make the choices that you do, like what's under all of this. Um, Plus they arm you with all these tools to start replacing bad entrenched habits with better ones, just really one baby step at a time. Uh, My personal experience with Noom is that it's all these victories in my life that have nothing to do with the scale. That is why this is working for me. I feel so much better in my mind. I feel so much better in my body. I have more energy. I'm developing this muscle memory for confidence because I'm I'm seeing that it is possible to relearn and to begin making good choices for myself in a habitual way. So it's just a game changer for my mindset and then ultimately for my physical health. You can sign up for your absolutely free trial. So go to Noom. It's N O O M. Noom.com slash for the love. So that is N-O-O-M.com slash for the love. Start making those like small manageable changes this very day. Noom.com slash for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. I want to um, wrap things up here with you. And I wonder if I could ask you, to share what for me is one of my favorite benedictions of yours. And and this is, this is one of your special gifts. This is um, the language of liturgy and of blessing and of benediction is uh, just a, a very special tool that God has um, put in your hands. And so 
You wrote a benediction called Blessed Are the Unemployed, Unimpressive, and Underrepresented. And uh, while ominously dark titling, um, it is full of to me, meaning and hope and goodness and Jesus. And so I wonder if you could share that with us and just sort of send out everyone listening today um, in a, just in a place of worship, really. Yeah. Well, I wrote that because um, I think that the cer- I mean, a lot of times the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, are set up as another to-do list for us, like be mournier. I think that it's about Jesus' lavish blessing of the people, the the actual people around him on that hillside that day, that he was blessing people in his world on that hill um, who who that world like ours didn't seem to have much time for like people in pain and people who work for peace instead of profit and people who exercise mercy instead of vengeance. So I imagine Jesus standing, uh, offering new, new blessings for our particularities like this. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are they who doubt, who aren't sure, who can still be surprised Blessed are they who are spiritually impoverished and therefore not so certain about everything that they no longer take in new information. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who've buried their loved ones for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who've loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables, the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the teens who have to figure out how to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard, for Jesus chose to surround himself with people like you. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without lobbyists. Blessed are foster kids and special ed kids and every other kid who just wants to feel safe and loved. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burned-out social workers and the overworked teachers and the pro bono case takers. Blessed are kind-hearted football players and fundraising trophy wives. Blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed are those who hear they're forgiven. Blessed are the merciful, for they totally get it. Well, that is all there is to say on that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Oh, God. Well... (laughs) I'm sorry to blow my nose right now. Okay. <laughs> sorry, listeners. Um, thank you for that, Nadia. Thank you You're for welcome. those words. It's so, 
special and beautiful and true. And so there's nothing else to add to that. Um, you are a gift, um, not just to this whole world, but to me. Oh, thank so you. thank you for being a, a good pastor and a good friend and a good leader. Yeah. Um, I've learned so much from you and I continue to. And so um, I send you all of the love and blessings um, of Christmas and of Bethlehem to you and to your beautiful people and to your future. And I can't wait to see this sort of next version of your work in the world and what mm-hmm. it'll look like. And I just, um, I bless it and I honor it in advance because um, I know it'll lead me and teach me and the rest of us as well. So, um, so much love to you, dear friend. Merry Christmas to you. And thank you for being on today. You too. Merry Christmas. Well, I hope that um, just meant as much to you as it did to me and served you well, because it certainly did me. Um, I want to just close today um, by reading a bit of the story, just as it was written in Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Merry Christmas, everybody. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.